Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Karen Jepson Innes. I worked on that on my way here, Karen. That Scottish last name. <laughs> She's the executive director of Wonder Lab. And we're going to find out all about Wonder Lab and about Karen. Karen, thanks for being on Big Talk. My pleasure to be here. Well, Wonder Lab is the kind of place that I would have loved to go to every day of the week when I was a kid. Science. And playing with science. And playing with yeah, science. Some of our visitors say this is a playground for science. It's uh, our, our ultimate goal is to make science fun for people of all ages. And if it's fun, it's learned better, quicker, faster. Well, exactly. And there's also a lot of research that shows that people who are in a relaxed, playful state of mind is uh, the time when new information can be acquired more easily. So there's a legitimate reason to be playing uh, out there in the world as well as at Wonder Lab. Now, by playing, we're not saying this isn't serious. This is serious stuff. In fact, you are a serious scientist, as are many others at Wonder Lab. Well, that's true. I have a degree in a master's degree in biology and uh, did some research that was published. And uh, our our current CFO and former executive director, Catherine Ulmer, is a physicist at Indiana University. And we have other scientists on our staff as well. So it is a point of pride that that uh, many of the staff people and so many of the volunteers we work with at Wonder Lab are are uh, science professionals. Speaking of science, I, I, I was going through some of, uh, uh, on one of those websites that shows people's papers, research papers, and you have a number of them listed on one of these websites. And I just wanted to say, one of the research papers you worked on was entitled, Characteristics of Dynamic Postural Reactions in the <laughs> Locust Hind Leg. Now that is both serious, and about as focused as it gets, uh, the hind leg of the locust. This was a really interesting study that combined my interest in insect biology hmm. with uh, neurobiology. I was working in a lab that was studying the uh, neuro responses, how, how animals actually wire up their neurons mm -hmm. to have reflexes like walking or jumping. And You're talking about the mechanism yeah, of it. this was really looking at the nerve that came off the muscle in this particular kind of insect. And this is, uh, reminds me of when I was in high school, uh, there would be the frog and you would put the, uh, the hot wire to it, the poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, they was, weren't alive, quite frankly. Yeah, but it was kind of like it. Yeah, and, yeah. And I didn't like that quite so much. But the overall goal of the project was really interesting because it was in the very early days. This was, was many, many years ago. And it was actually informing the development of robotic movements oh. and using insects as a model for how robotic systems could be developed. They, in that sense, are a lot simpler than mammals and people like you and me? Yes, true. You know, they're small. They have a very 
decentralized nervous system. Mm. The brain is not very large. They're fairly simply, uh, as far as uh, animals overall go, they're a lot more simply wired up than a vertebrate like a human. So there was some interest in in making those uh, that knowledge. When you were doing this intense uh, work with hind legs and all the rest, what were you hoping to eventually become? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. So uh, at the time, I I loved the biology and the science of the research that I was doing. I thought it was super cool. Uh, But what was always in the fringe of my mind is what's the bigger picture of this and you know, could any, anybody could really do what I was doing. I wasn't doing anything new or creating anything. And so I think always on the fringes of my mind was how do I, how do I communicate just this amazing uh, aspects of biology to more people? Mm-hmm. Through education, uh, to a community, and I think that's part of how I wound up doing what I'm doing today. So was there thinking that you might want to be a teacher, or did you not want to be stuck in a schoolroom? Well, I had always been a teacher, Uh uh, but not in the traditional classroom sense. My first job out of college was, uh, was as a park interpreter. In Colorado, and yeah, because uh, uh, you went to Colorado College, and uh, for your master's, you went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. Right. Well, this was okay. after my undergraduate work, and I got a great job at a park. And my job was to become knowledgeable about the natural history of the area, the birds, the plants, the trees, the flowers, and the rocks, and try to communicate to visitors from all over the world why these things were important, why they were cool, how they applied and intersected with their particular lives and particular experiences, and to leave them with a wonderful memory of having visited this place and and a better appreciation for the world. So I love that. That was that was a wonderful job. You know, I can attest to that. I recall going to Great Smoky Mountains National Park years ago and the person who was doing essentially what you were doing in Colorado was uh, pointing out the flowers and saying in the old days people used to take these flowers and rub them on themselves they were like deodorant in a weird or perfume and, it, and that just always stuck with me and that was just a wonderful thing to learn and I had no idea in going to this park that I was going to learn something that interesting you did the same type of thing Right, exactly. And uh, an example for where I was was people who live on the East Coast, for example. Um, would I could connect with them because one of the geologic layers that was exposed in this park was an old marine environment. And oh. you could actually see shark's teeth in it. So to imagine that this area where we were standing was once covered by an ocean that had sharks swimming in it. They can connect uh, to their personal life in that way. And you'd be uh, at least a thousand miles away from the sea in that that setting. Yet, in the dim past, there was water. Right. Well, there was water here in Indiana at one time. Exactly. Well, you know your science stuff, and... People come to Wonder Lab to learn just a little bit 
and to have fun, as you say. Who does come to Wonder Lab? Oh, well, we get, uh, overall, we serve uh, 83 to 85,000 people a year. Mm-hmm. Between those who actually come into the physical museum and, and those we serve at Outreach. And there, uh, in 2018, we know that they came from every state in the Union except, I think, Rhode Island. So <laughs> I was going to say maybe Hawaii or Alaska, no, but it was, it was Rhode Island. Rhode Island was maybe it's because there's 10 people but, who right, live in Rhode Island. Island. But yeah. basically we get visitors from all over the country and from all counties in Indiana. Wow. Um, and then, as you can imagine, most of them come from Monroe County and our, and our close-in neighborhood. Now, you mentioned outreach. What do you mean by outreach? What do you do? Oh, okay. Well, outreach means Wonder Lab staff taking cool science activities and experiences and sometimes small exhibits out to other places, other communities. Uh, We go to schools, we go to community centers, we go to libraries, uh, we go to churches. In fact, this is exactly how Wonder Lab started back in 1995 was as an outreach program that took things out into the community because we didn't have a physical space. So we continue to serve the community uh, in that day today, in that way today. So we we go um, local. We do things uh, actually at the many of the MCCSC schools. We have an after-school program that huh. serves the six Title I schools in our school district. So we do that as during the school year, but we also do other outreach to outlying counties and uh, throughout the rural regions of South Central Indiana. You don't even have to go to Wonder Lab or wait for Wonder Lab to come to you. You can go to the website. Now, I was reading the blog. There is a blog on the website. Oh, right. We have lots of blogs. And uh, there was a uh, post uh, dated November 23rd, uh, what, about a week ago, is that, or 10 days ago? And the author talks about spilling a cup of coffee. And while the author was running around trying to find something to sop it up, the author started musing on what are the properties of liquids and how they flow. Now, that's the way a scientist thinks. Yeah. Now, this person went on to talk about viscosity and asks, what is your favorite liquid? And how does it flow if there's a change in the environment? This is real science, and you can get that just by going to the website. And that website is wonderlab.org. Simple as that. So that's part of outreach, too, I would imagine. Yes, that's true. And in the last several years, we've really made an effort to build up our website so that we can provide solid science content through, mm-hmm. the, through blogs and, and other information that's on the website. So people can come to us for information. Now, anybody who thinks science is boring, going back to that blog about two weeks before that post that I just mentioned, there was a post called Meet Cleese, the rough-skinned newt. <laughs> and we learn that rough-skinned newts and I guess there is one at Wonderland. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. There is Cleese. Yeah. <laughs> they live on the Pacific coast from southeastern Alaska down to San Francisco Bay Area. Right. Well, that little animal has a much bigger story. Ah. And uh, that dates back many years ago 
when uh, we did a partnership with an IU professor who was an ecologist, and he studied coevolution of animals, how sometimes different animals or sometimes plants and animals develop adaptations that are mutually beneficial. Anyway, he studied this really interesting adaptation that the newts have when they are in a habitat with a certain species of uh, garter snake. Mm. So the, the newts have a toxin in their skin that is either distasteful or uh, poisonous and lethal to other animals that eat it. So the newt does not want to be eaten uh-huh. by the snake. So uh, the adaptation that, that this population of garter snakes has when they develop in the same area is that the, this particular species of garter snake can eat the newts without being sick or dying. Hmm. And that's because... That's not good for the newt. Well, not good for the <laughs> newt, but it's good for the snake because yes. the snake has another source of food. So he was studying the adaptation within the snake's digestive system that allowed that to occur. So we thought that was amazing. In other areas, uh, a snake would eat the newt and it would die. This stuff fascinates (laughs) me, and I'm as old as the hills. But Wonder Lab is pretty much oriented to... I'm throwing it in your lap now. Okay, well... People think children. Right. That is true. That's definitely our our primary demographic. Uh, But we also have the goal to reach out and communicate things to adults as well. We want to engage adults. We don't want them to be bored. We want them to learn things, even uh, adults who may be science experts. That's the biggest compliment to me. We We know that kids are having fun. Uh, but when an adult tells me that they're really interested and excited and surprised by the fact that they're interested, that's the best compliment. So uh, we we strive for that in our exhibit development, to engage all ages. Now, as an adult, if I went alone or with my wife to Wonder Lab, would we feel out of place because we don't we're not carrying a pack of kids with us? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, we have lots of people that come in that way. In fact, it's kind of, we've noticed that sometimes it's uh, a date, a weekend date. Ah. We see people come in, which is really cool. And we also have a quarterly program called After Dark, Wonder Lab After Dark, that's specifically for adults. Huh. No, no children. It's a 21 and over. We have a cash bar. We do special programming, and it's a really fun time for Uh, adults to come into the museum and not feel like they're out of place. Are there other facilities like this in other cities? And what might they be? And were you inspired by other facilities when you were coming up with this? Sure. So when, uh, so to answer your question, yes, there are science museums and children's museums in many, many cities around the country. Yeah. I, the idea for to have a museum that was interactive where you could actually touch stuff I th- was really uh, inspired by work done in San Francisco by the Exploratorium. Right. And that has a long legacy of uh, they were they were one of the very early 
uh, groups that started doing this. And word spread and other communities across the country started doing that. And this would have been in the, the 80s and 90s, I would say. So we did choose uh, some model museums to look to uh, as we were developing Wonder Lab. And one of them was on the East Coast, and one of them was in the Upper Midwest. They're still fantastic museums, and we still look to them for inspiration. Why don't we go back to those days just before Wonder Lab became a thing? Apparently, there was some group of people, I don't know how big, you're going to let me know, but you were in it, that would meet in living rooms and talk about this kind of thing. Well, this would have been back in the, boy, 1994. Wonder Lab was incorporated in 1995 as a 501c3 organization. So those meetings would have happened uh, before that. But yes, they, they were a small group of, of people who had this idea. And I will give a shout out to our founder, Deborah Kent, Mm-hmm. was the person who kind of organized those, went out and, and found interested people. Uh, during that time, the, the name was developed, and I think it's the best museum name in the world. Where, And I will also say there was a, this would have been before that, there was a big meeting to, I first read about this project, and I don't know the, the year, maybe 93 in the newspaper about a group of people who were going to start a science museum. And I had recently moved here with my husband Ah. and a baby, and Uh I didn't really have a job. Well, I didn't have a job. I was a mom at home. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Calling your name. Calling my name. So I went to this meeting, and there were maybe hundreds of people there. It was a big meeting. Wow. And there were people, doctors, lawyers, professors, really power people that were interested in this project. And I thought, whoa, my work here is done. This is a happening thing, and I'll sign up to help with mailings or do whatever people wanted to do. You'll be one of many. I'll be one of many, right. So uh, time passes, and and in the end... uh, those all of those people, although they were very interested, were all had full time jobs and didn't yeah. have any time to do anything like organize and you know create a new organization. So I jumped on board and raised my hand to say that I would uh, coordinate the volunteers mm-hmm. because at the little nature center where I worked previously, I had done that. Mm-hmm. There were no staff, yeah, had no money, uh, but we had people who were really interested. and There was a story that ran in the Herald Times a couple of years ago, February 13th, 2017. Here's how it started. I'm going to quote. You ready? Early on a bitterly cold morning on January 10th, 1998, Catherine Ulmer and Karen Jepson Innes unlocked a small room in the Wicks building on the Bloomington Courthouse Square and welcomed the first visitors for the first time ever to the brand new Wonder Lab. Do you remember that oh, day? I sure do. It was a cold uh, morning. Sure do. Was anybody there when you opened that door? Was anybody waiting? Well, when we opened, my memory of that first day, I don't remember if there were people going down the sidewalk, but 
I do remember how many people came and that there were 600 visitors who came. Wait, on a bitterly cold day? Thursday, right. And so that might not seem like a lot of people. It does. But you have to know that the space we were in was very, very tiny. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe a thousand square feet. Oh, that's next to nothing. It's next to nothing. And so it was really crowded in that space all day long. And it was really fun and really exciting. How did you finance that opening? Well, we uh, we had a great support from CFC mm-hmm. and that they let us use a space for a short period of time uh, as a way to bring people to the downtown area. This was before a lot of the downtown square renovation had had it had happened. And that's the Cook Group uh, real estate operation. Right, right, yeah, right. And they thought that this would be. A wonderful thing to do to the community, as they do. They're always thinking big picture about how to how to grow our community and grow downtown, and it really worked. So we we stayed in that space for maybe two to three years, mm-hmm. and we paid the rent as we went on. We're only open on Saturdays to the public. Oh. And then we were open by reservation or by appointment uh, to school groups during the week. Uh, and at the same time, we were fundraising for what was to be the permanent museum on 4th Street. Was that structure built for you? Yes, it was. You raised money. We did. Are you one of the people who got on the phone and said, uh, hey, uh, <laughs> why don't you open up that wallet? Well, I was one of the people, I wasn't the development person, uh-huh. um, but I was one of the people who wrote grants and mm-hmm. who wrote materials and uh, for, for the people who did the actual development work. A lot of things have happened and a lot of exhibits have been uh, staged and I found uh, an interesting thing, uh, WTHR Channel 13, oh, 15 years ago, I think, uh, had a story, and it was entitled, Museum Trip May Have Saved Boy's Life. (laughs) Do you remember this one? Yes, I do. What happened there? Well, we have this clever exhibit uh, called the Heartbeat Drum, or we sometimes call it the Rhythms of Life, Right. where uh, the visitor can put their hand on a, a metal sensor that actually picks up the electrical impulse from your heartbeats transmitted through your skin. uh, Like the machines at the gym can do. Yeah, exactly. Super simple technology. But the fun thing about it is that that's wired up to an actual uh, bass drum. So the uh, it pounds and you can hear your heartbeat. So the drum beats to the rhythm of your actual heart. And so the prompt on the exhibit is do some jumping jacks or then rest and see how it changes. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, this, this boy uh, was there with his family and uh, used this. And his mom was standing there and noticed that the drum was beating really rapidly. Yeah. And she told her son, well, stop jumping around and <laughs> now watch it go down. And he said, well, he wasn't jumping around. He was just standing there. Yeah. So they did this for a while, and she saw that 
her son's heart rate was remaining high. Way high. Way high. I, I see that it was at about 150. Yeah, and that's, that's way that's, high. Well, that's not super high if you're like running, running right. around, but if you're just standing and, and restful, that is pretty high for a child. Yeah. And we do make uh, a disclaimer on the exhibit that it's not a medical diagnostic right. tool. Right. But it does tell you something about yeah. your body. And anyway, the mother followed up on this. She thought this was kind of strange and yeah. followed up with the boy's doctor. And he indeed did have a heart rhythm uh, anomaly that was promptly treated. Saving was, his life. <laughs> well, yeah, so <laughs> we take that as a win. Uh, as we have been saying, things are changing all the time. You always want to keep dynamic and new and fresh, and uh, you've got a new exhibit area. Right, we do. We've got a brand new whole exhibit area, plus we've got three new bubble exhibits, plus we have a super cool new augmented reality sandbox exhibit. So, what? Right, we've been busy over there. Uh, <laughs> So the, the biggest change I think that people see when they come in is the whole first floor of the museum looks different. We're, we're really proud and excited to deliver uh, a space called Science Sprouts Place. It's a brand new area uh, specifically designed for infants and toddlers. So these are visitors birth through age three and their caregivers. We've never had an area or exhibit specifically uh, that specifically serve the needs of this age group before. So we're really excited about that. Do you have fun working there? Oh, it's the best job in the world. <laughs> at least in at least in Indiana. It would be neat to go there again. It's at 308 West 4th Street. We're talking about Wonder Lab. That's the Museum of Science, Health and Technology right here just west of Courthouse Square. Right. Oh, I just wanted to say a few more things about Science Sprouts Place. Go ahead. And that um, many visitors might remember that we've always had a preschool area. It was called Discovery Garden. And why did that go away? Well, uh, what we learned over the years is that there's been so much research done about infant learning Hmm. and why learning and activities and experiences in the even the first year of life is crucial to early childhood development. So we work, did work with faculty scientists at Indiana University, experts in childhood cognition, to develop this area and feel that we're addressing a need that's really important in our community, and that's for understanding the importance of the first year of life, developing uh, children's brains. To, so we're, we're really trying to push out that message that it didn't used to feel that way at Wonder Lab. We had people saying, well, my, I just have a baby and there's nothing for them to do. That's, uh, we're trying to dispel that and say, no, first year of life is critical for an infant, whether they go to Wonder Lab or whether they read at home, do things with their family. Just being alive right. is an educational experience. And, right. and just pay attention. So we're hoping to what we're providing at Science Sprouts Place are some models of what that looks like. What does really great parent, uh, caregiver, child interaction look like? They're flocking to Wonder Lab. <laughs> 
Karen Jepson Innes is the executive director. Karen, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you. This is really fun.